0: Okay, welcome back to what is essentially season two of the Chiropractic Freedom Show. Um, and uh, you'll remember last year we started off with a bang in our first episode with uh, Dr. Fab Mancini, and uh, this season we are starting off with a bang again. Um, I've been looking forward to this quite some time. To be honest, part of me is, is um, surprised I'm even in this position, thinking about it years ago, that I'm speaking to someone like Dr. Guy Riekeman. Um, if you don't know him, first of all, I'd be very surprised. Probably one of the most well-known um, docs that have ever been in the profession. Um, one of the most impactful ever. Uh, many will you will know him from uh, his uh, time when he was uh, heading up uh, Life University. For those of you that have been around for longer, you may know him from uh, these coaching program days. I think a guy was at the Renaissance in the in the eighties.
1: Renaissance
0: and then Quest. And then Quest. I mean, th- that was revolutionary yeah. for that time. So, you know, the, the purpose of this show is really to bring thought leaders, visionaries onto the show, both mostly inside, but sometimes outside the profession to impart some type of wisdom, strategies, habits, whatever will serve the chiropractic community and give us what we need to expand the impact that we're having. Um, and Guy, if I can say this before we start, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself. Your resume will be so long, I won't even know where to start. So uh, you can give a summary. But, you know, a few years ago, someone said to me, if you could have one chiropractor go on Oprah or go on Joe Rogan and actually sit down and hash out who we are, what we believe, why it's important and have a conversation like that, who would it be? And I immediately said, Dr. Guy Riechman. And there are, other, there are other people out there that are great communities, communicators. Patrick Gentempo springs to mind for me. But outside of your certainty and your communication style, there's, you have this ability to have authority and authenticity at the same time when you communicate which I think is extremely rare, which is why I gave that answer. So it's a real privilege for me to speak with you today and and the people that watch this or listen to it, I believe it'll be their privilege as well. So why don't we start with you giving us a little bit of your background, where you started, where you're at now.
1: Well, you're you're way too generous with your comments, but uh, but appreciated. Thanks. Uh, As you know, being a traveler, um, it's comments like that it'll, that allow you to get on the airplane every weekend and head out to another program. Uh, and I do really, really appreciate you for not reading my resume. I I jokingly, although this was actually true, someone got up one time that didn't know me and just kind of read my resume. And while they're droning on up there, I, I thought to myself in the back of the room, either everyone in the room thinks I've done a lot or I couldn't hold the job. So, you know, I I didn't know which one. And, 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 you know, and your comment about uh, being well-known, it's so funny. Uh, You you better enjoy your life because there's probably not a lot of people that remember it afterwards. Um, uh, I remember when Reggie Gold passed away, uh, within six months, I asked an audience of students one time when I was at Life, how many had listened to Reggie and half the room had never heard of his name. So, yeah, so... Uh, but I do appreciate it, and uh, we were commenting just before we started about how common our purpose was. Uh, my purpose, since I uh, enrolled in chiropractic school in 1969 and graduated in 1972, uh, we were we were a bunch of hippies back then. We were it was during the uh, Vietnam War, the anti-war movement was going on. It was anti everything establishment, yeah. and our way of being anti-establishment was challenging the medical community and the whole concept of how they view health. And of course, we view health differently. And so from the moment I got out of school, my entire life was committed to, how do we get people to understand our principle in chiropractic? Even if they don't understand chiropractic, how do we get them to understand this vitalistic principle of the body as a self-developing, self-healing, self-maintaining, self-conscious organism? And so from the very beginning, you know, we used whatever technology was available uh, and at that time, it was standing up in front of our patients and prospective patients and doing healthcare classes, yeah. uh, you know, in our reception rooms. And then uh, I met up with Dr. Joe Felicia, and we developed a series of thirteen charts uh, that people could use to do their healthcare classes. And of course, most chiropractors either don't want to or don't have the capacity uh, to stand up in front of patients, you know, once or twice a week and do an hour to two-hour mm-hmm. lecture. Uh, And so we evolved in 1977 to producing educational programs on videotape uh, out at the Osmond Studios in Provo, Utah, with people at that time that were well-known, people people like Peter Graves and Lauren Green and Jane Kennedy and others. Um, But as you said, it was really revolutionary at the time because only 10% of American households even had a VCR in uh, 1977. We, we used to have to spend half the renaissance seminar that Joe and I conducted trying to convince chiropractors that it wasn't unethical to have a VCR in your office. So, um, I, I mean, that's how far back it was. And uh, we would have at the back of the room uh, stacks of VCRs because at the end of the seminar when the chiropractors went home, uh, they didn't have a VCR. So we, had to, we were passing out VCRs in the back tools. of the room as they're walking out the back door. So... Anyway, and then yeah, we uh, we started Renaissance, and uh, I did that for ten years. Joe and I did every weekend, and then dropped out on a beach in Southern California for four years, and was going to eight movies a week and watching the Lakers play basketball uh, during the heyday against the Celtics. And uh, uh, one day woke up and said, I can't, I can't just drop out like this and be brain dead for the rest of my life, and. Uh saw a guy by the name of Werner Earhart in San Diego, California, with 5,000 other people, draw a diagram up on the board, maybe we can talk about it along the way, and uh, it got my butt back into gear, and I went back and created Quest, which was the largest management program at the time, uh, and then left that abruptly to go help Palmer. They had some votes of no confidence from their alumni and faculty and staff. I mm-hmm. uh, was there for six years and then wound up at Life, and we put both those places we rebuilt them to the largest chiropractic colleges in the world. So uh, that's what I've been doing uh, the last five decades and uh, uh, left life about three years ago and uh, graciously left and uh, uh, have been uh, producing. Yeah. So um, that's what I've been doing for the last five decades. And uh, we, um, uh, are pushing on with the same motivation, which is how do we affect humanity by bringing the chiropractic principle and the chiropractic lifestyle, uh, not just to patients, but to the entire planet. We had a great line at Life University that we wouldn't stop until every person on the planet had access to chiropractic care or a chiropractic education if they wanted. And I think that kind of sums up what I wanted to do in 1972 when I left Palmer College.
0: Wow. Uh, And I mean, you've you've put that across beautifully. I mean, it really is, uh, we could have spent another 20 minutes talking about what you've done, but you've really just taken what I believe is, you know, the most impactful things and and communicated and put it across beautifully. I mean, my first question, and I knew I wanted to ask you this, was, you know, what drives you? And and you have kind of answered that, um, but I just find it interesting with someone who had, uh, you know, a successful consulting business. And like, I, I didn't know this, that you actually stopped for a while, but then what drives someone to go into education and go into running a university? I mean, now I'm sure you are at a stage in your life where you have the resources where you can go back to the beach. I know you're living in Puerto Rico, but you could probably buy a boat and and relax, but yet you are talking about a new project, um, which we potentially could collaborate you with you. So what... What drives you, and where do you think that comes from? Do you think certain people are born with that, or is that something that you develop over time? What's your opinion on that?
1: Yeah, you know, two things come to my mind when you say that to me. Um, You know, what causes people to get committed, you know, deeply committed? Mm. Uh, Most people think that uh, you get up and uh, you go to work, and that somewhere along the way something just clicks inside and, All of a sudden you have this passion to commit your life to. Uh, I've never seen that happen. Uh, What I've seen is that these issues in life are going by us all the time, right? Life is going by us. And at some point, you look at them and you say, you know what, that's what I'm committed to. And it's a conscious commitment. And it's not something that uh, just happens to be a spark inside of you. Uh, I'll tell you what, you know, but even more specifically, uh, you asked me what keeps me motivated doing this after all this time. Uh, if we want to get really into it, my, uh, my youngest daughter, when she was 20, uh, was going to uh, art school in Los Angeles. And I had seen her recently. She was just really tired. Uh, but, you know, it's just what you would normally think of college kids. She was going to school all day long. She was working a part-time job to have some money, all of that. So when I was with her, we were hanging out in L.A. Uh, with her dad coming in with a pocketbook, right, so we could really have some fun. And she just wanted to sleep. And a couple months later, we got a call. And uh, I sent her down to a chiropractor in Orange County that was someone I really respected, uh, that practiced the Blair technique. And it's at the college, they just told her she was tired, but he took an X-ray of her. And found a huge tumor in her chest. Uh, we now know where that came from. She was born in an area of Phoenix, Arizona, where, decade, two decades later, they found a huge number of girls with tumors in their chest that started once they hit puberty, and the boys had an unbelievably high rate of testicular cancer. So this was a this was a process that was stimulated that hit kids not immediately, but hit them. Um, they hit puberty and she had this huge tumor in her chest she couldn't lay down and breathe she had to sit up all the time we flew her home quickly from california and when we got her off the plane it was like a person i'd never seen before in my life Um, and we wound up in the hospital and they were they were that we wanted to know what this tumor was And the doctors gave us two options. They said, we can go in just underneath her rib. I don't want to get too detailed. And just take out a small tissue sample and see what we're working with. Or we can go in, open up her chest, go in. And one of the things they wanted to do was collapse the pericardium around her heart. It had swollen up, and they felt that that was what was causing her breathing difficulty, that when she laid down, uh, she couldn't breathe because of this swollen pericardium. So we we talked about it and we decided we wanted the least invasive thing possible. And the doctor, I remember the day, because he didn't want to do the least invasive. He wanted to go in and do all of this stuff. And we got in a a fight. He was just really arrogant. And I'm not saying that all doctors are arrogant, but this doctor was really arrogant. And I I remember him saying to me, I'll never forget this. Uh, He said, I don't know about your profession, but our profession, we have a saying, which is, Physician first, do no harm. And man, I wanted to lace into him knowing that they were the third leading cause of death in the United States because of their concepts and their procedures. And while I respect them for things they do, I'm walking today because of them. Uh, It's that notion that they can bring people health with powders and pills and potions and cutting things out of people's bodies. And uh, we told him, no, go in, do the least invasive thing possible. He went in because I kept asking him, why would the pericardium be swollen like that? Uh, You and I have a different concept. We think that the body is innately always trying to express its greatest degree of health and that these issues just aren't random pathologies that happen, these are the body's responses to trying to be a whole, healthy, well-adapting, well-surviving human being. And so he said, well, there are no side effects. And I said, I don't believe you, I said, Maybe they're minimal, but there's always side effects when you go into the body. And that's when he gave me that line about physician, do no harm. Anyway, we told him, you can't do this. We wouldn't sign off on it. Get the least, the simplest tissue sample. Let's find out what we're dealing with. They went in and they decided along the way they were going to do what they wanted to do anyway. And they opened up her chest and they collapsed the pericardium. And when they did, they found out why innate had swollen that pericardium up. Be, it, what it had done was it was swollen up so that it was the tumor that was in her chest was away from the arteries carrying oxygen to her brain. It was the body's innate response to keeping her brain having this flow of oxygen. As soon as they collapsed the pericardium, the tumor laid down on these arteries and she was dead in five minutes uh, from being robbed, her brain being robbed of oxygen. Uh, And then they lied about it and tried to cover it up until a pathologist at the hospital uh, stood up and said, this is what really went on. Uh, And of course, there were no real consequences to the doctors that did it, et cetera. But uh, I look at that and I think about that every day when I don't want to get on the airplane. I think there's another person out there that doesn't get the message, who's going to have that kind of situation occur again. And so, While I'm passionate about changing the world, what keeps me going every day and getting on the airplane um, is my daughter and what she represents uh, to all the daughters in humanity. So I don't know know how to answer your question about how do you find passion. I think you find something, you get committed to it, you throw your whole life into it, and the level of passion that you get out of it is the level of how much you've thrown your life and and everything you believe into it. Uh, If you dabble with it, you're going to have dabble passion. If you totally throw yourself into it, you're going to have totally thrown yourself into it passion. And then I think there's things along the way, like my daughter for me, that just really on the days you don't want to get up and do it, uh, you get up and do it anyway.
0: God, thank you so much for, for sharing that. And I mean, I have three kids myself, so... it even the thought of that is almost outside of my realm of of thinking but and i know you openly sharing that will probably spark something inside many chiropractors that are feeling in a rut you know and and spark something in them about why they're doing what they're doing so thank you so much for sharing that um and and you mentioned something which I, i think is important in that Someone may look at you from the outside and, and say, okay, well, Dr. Reekman's done so much and he's done Life University and he turned it into a huge success. He's done well in business. And then they look at their own life and they, they look at the challenges they have and they look at your kind of highlights reel and their own challenges. And, and people don't often realize how many challenges and bad days and things successful people go through like yourself. Now, I can imagine... Running a university where you're trying to keep the principles of chiropractic strong, you're trying to get credibility outside of the profession. I'm sure there's a lot of politics involved and things like that. I mean, you've surely come up against challenges in days where you just wanted to get out of there and and find a hole to climb in. You know, and and I'm sure right. there's a lot of doctors that are listening to that. That perhaps they're feeling that way now. I mean, I've, I speak to chiropractors every day. There's a lot of them since the COVID outbreak that have lost a lot of, a lot of uh, optimism. They they kind of feel like we we're going in the wrong direction. What would you say to docs like that that are are finding things very challenging at the moment? Yeah,
1: I think each job has its own challenge. You mentioned the politics of education. I always remember a great line from George Washington. Uh, he said, "I've uh, been the head of the federal army uh, fighting the British." He goes, "I've been the, uh, the president of the United States and the president of Washington University." He said, "And none of them were as political as Washington University." Uh, and his last line was, "He said because the stakes were so low, you know." Uh, <laughs> so yeah, sometimes you just feel like, "Oh, screw this. What's the point?" He, You know, what? when you were saying that to me, I was thinking, uh, my father was a chiropractor. He graduated in 1947. Uh, His name isn't in a book. Uh, He wasn't the president necessarily of anything. Uh, He was just a a sweet, gentle, passionate chiropractor who practiced in uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico. And my mother worked with him, ran the front desk. Uh, My sister eventually took his practice over. So literally, that practice has been running since 1947. And uh, uh, my mother passed away at 93 and literally weeks before she passed away, she was running the office uh, and, and people always go, wow, your mom, she's something. And I always tell them, no, don't, don't make a saint out of her. I remember her complaining about it every single day before she had to go to the office. And, and her complaint was not about running the office, but that after what, 50 years, 50 some years, she still hadn't found one person that could run that front desk correctly. Right. So she had to go in and do it every day. Right. So, uh, but you know, a a situation happened to me that really woke me up to what you're talking about. Uh, One of the last board meetings I had at Life University, uh, our board meetings were all day Saturday and then a half a day Sunday. That's typically how we did it four times a year. And I remember that um, Chuck Ribley came in Chuck, was one of the original 14 people that walked with Dr. Williams on uh, Ormond Beach in Florida and the night they decided to start Life Universities and, you know, was one of the first people that wrote that check for $10,000 to say, hey, let's get started. So you look at life or Chuck Ribley's life, um, you know, you say, well, he helped start the school, this school and just think of all the chiropractors and all the patients and all the families that have been impacted because... He wrote a check for $10,000 in Florida one night, you know, on the beach with Dr. Williams. Uh, you look at the politics that they started, and uh, he's from Michigan, and the Michigan Chiropractic Association uh, is one of the most powerful uh, state associations in the country. I could go, and then he was a lecturer for years teaching people how to find that inner something, that special something inside of, of people. So, and he's done that all over the world. Uh, and so you think of all the chiropractors he's impacted, and you know you start adding that up. You really are talking about millions of people and tens of millions of lives, you know, that are impacted. But he came in to the board meeting one Sunday morning. On Sunday morning, and he was, as, and he's a pretty emotional guy anyway. But he was as emotional as I've ever seen him. And he said that the night before he was having a, he had a, a, a revelation about when he got his license. So flashback, 1955, roughly. Uh, At that time, there were no national boards. When you got out of school, if you wanted to practice in Michigan, you went to Michigan to take their state examination. That didn't get you a license anywhere else. It only got you a license in Michigan. Uh, If you wanted to go to California, you had to go to California and take their state examination. Um, And all these states, for the most part, had medical basic science boards. So even though there was... A chiropractic law in all of in most of these states, um, you couldn't get to the chiropractic licensing board to take the test until you got through the state basic science board, which was in those days, basically what we call part one today. It, you had to take a test in anatomy and physiology and chemistry and diagnosis and uh, these subjects, but they were all run by medical doctors, every single one of them. Uh, Joseph Keating, one of our profession's historians, was doing a study on this and found that only in the entire history of chiropractic, only one chiropractor ever had been appointed by a governor to sit on the basic science licensing boards. Do you have chiropractors a fair shot at getting through? And so, um, uh, the, interestingly enough, the state was the state of New Mexico. And so when River got out of school, Chuck Ripley got out of school, uh, it was almost impossible to get a Michigan license at the time. But people were, knew they could go to New Mexico and have a shot at getting through this basic science board. And interestingly, New Mexico did have reciprocity with Michigan. So if you could get a New Mexico license, then you could go practice in Michigan at the time. So Chuck, Chuck went down and took the examination and didn't, he failed. The tests were all essays. They were all subjectively graded. You couldn't even argue them, right, in a court. He failed, and this chiropractor pulled him aside and said, look, here's what you need to do to get ready for the next exam. So uh, Chuck did, he passed the exam, he got his license in New Mexico, could practice in Michigan, and all the stuff that we talked about evolved from that. And the reason why Chuck was so emotional at this board meeting, uh, that we had at life university was it dawned on him. He was thinking back the night before to that. And he realized that the person that was on that board was my dad and how everything had come full circle from that. And I remember, I didn't even know that I, I knew that my dad had been a assigned or a, Joseph Keating had told me before he passed away that in doing this process, of trying to find out how the basic science boards were limiting chiropractic. Uh, he's the one who told me that only one chiropractor had ever been appointed by a governor. And it was my dad. Um, right. And I didn't even know my dad was just this quiet guy, never talked about anything. He was a D day, never mentioned it his whole lifetime. Um, but my dad would go up every weekend or whatever to Santa Fe, New Mexico. I had no idea what he was doing when I was growing up, didn't really care much about what it was. I had my own crazy high school life, right? Uh, and then to realize 40, 50 years later, how a chiropractor who will never be in a book, no one will ever remember his name necessarily. He just got up and did his work every day and wound up being on a, a, on the board of examiners in chiropractic and how it impacted the future of the profession you follow me so if i were if a chiropractor says to me you know you know i'm not going to be the head of a university i I get that right Uh, this that and the other Uh, the bottom line is what we do every day has tremendous impact even though at the time we don't see it's not like my dad knew that chuck ribley got through and got a license and then would start life university it's not why he did it he just did it because he was living his life and his principles every day and you have to find great passion and joy in that kind of a life.
0: Oh, God, I absolutely love that story. I've never heard that before. And it's, you know, I'm still trying to process how that all happened. I mean, there's, and I'm sure you agree with this, there are some things that happen in life that are so mystical, you just can't explain it, you know. And I've had that same experience. Yeah. And, and, and your story reminds me a lot of, um, I don't know if you know Ed Milet, He's a um, an entrepreneur and he's got a very uh, popular podcast. And he tells a story of how his father was an alcoholic. Um, and one day, uh, and anyway, he recovered from alcoholism and, and he ended up having a good relationship with him. But he woke up one night as an adult, I think he was 50 plus, crying. And his wife said, what's, what's wrong? And he said, I just realized that somebody spoke to my dad when he was in a bar and helped him stopped being an alcoholic, which meant I had a great relationship with him, and now I've built multiple businesses. I've got the most popular podcast on earth. I've affected millions of people. So there's some guy, and maybe he was stayed in that bar, but that one guy's conversation has literally changed millions and millions of people's lives. Yep. And now one of think- the- go ahead. No,
1: please, go ahead, go ahead.
0: No, I was just thinking that, you know, when you're in practice, you're in the trenches and you're worried about co-pays and your CA that hasn't arrived and, you know, all these things and your Facebook post only got three likes. I mean, it really, and it's something I have to remind myself as well, is that you only need one person to hear your message, whether it's online on a Facebook post or you speaking at a restaurant or your CA something, and you have no understanding of the ripple effect that that could have. And I think it's so important that everybody, but especially chiropractors, connect with that again um, and, and understand what the potential of what they're doing is. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, you know, our we did studies as, as chiropractic presidents at the uh, ACC, and we found out that by far, by far, the majority of students that entered chiropractic school, uh, while they had to de- deal with all these issues, the primary reason was that they wanted to serve people, and somewhere along the way, unfortunately, that gets beaten out of us. Whether it's you know t- trying to get through boards and trying to get a license and trying to get a business up and running so we can feed our family and all that, but tr- when we really go back to it, way down inside is this desire to serve, and uh, we all serve with what the universe has assigned us to do, right? For some of us, it's Uh, be on the road for some of us to be president of a couple colleges for someone else. It's to see 50 patients that day and educate them and transform humanity. It's all equal. It all has impact. And when somebody starts thinking, well, I'm not doing enough because I didn't become this or I didn't become that. It's not true. It's all about saving people's lives.
0: Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. And um, something that, um, I'd love your opinion on because let's, let's shift into the impact of chiropractic currently and, and the potential of it going forward. Now you mentioned Reggie gold. Um, I saw him speak once uh, in, I think it was in Newcastle in the UK when I had a practice in London, went to one of his seminars and I had the pleasure of having a discussion with him after, you know, one of the, the days. And um, he wasn't a big fan of where I studied <laughs> chiropractic and he, he made that, right. zone, but, but neither was I, to be honest, but, um, um, one thing about Reggie though, where I, I disagreed with him at that time was he was all about stay in your lane. In fact, he didn't even want chiropractors to talk about health. You know, it was just detection and correction of variable subluxation. As soon as you move out of that and you move into health, now you're moving into the, the medical model. And where I disagreed with him then, and it's still now, is the principles of chiropractic are much bigger than and I mean that's why it's life university, right? It's not just Spine University. It's life university because these are right. life principles. Right. 100%. Um hundred so percent. My and, and I you you know that with us we help chiropractors build online businesses. That the 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 purpose behind that is we believe that even if you go into nutrition, functional medicine, whatever, the truth and the principles will be injected in that. So how how would you say we should do this going forward, where chiropractors can use our principle and paradigm to impact broader, but at the same time, we keep our identity and don't just become natural healthcare providers. Sure,
1: the, um, and by the way, let me, let, let me go, before I answer that, go one step back. Um, it's interesting that people in certain organizations, uh, including our profession, have to take certain stands for identity purposes, um, in the in 1895 when chiropractic started, uh, and then BJ took over. You know the school started in 1897. BJ took it over shortly uh, after that. One of the first cases of chiropractic practicing medicine without a license was uh, Morakubu in Wisconsin, and BJ had to go to Wisconsin and defend why he wasn't practicing a form of osteopathy, why he wasn't practicing some of the other disciplines at the time. And it was at that moment that BJ took the stand that what we, or took the position that what we do as chiropractors is impact the nervous system, mm. right? Versus osteopathy, which impacts the cardiovascular system, etc. And so all of a sudden our profession headed in a certain direction because of the necessity of defending the profession mm. as a unique profession, and so he had to create an identity, not that it wasn't true, but he had to create a position identity to stand. And I know, for example, if I fast forward to Sherman College, because I was the vice president there uh, for three years when the school was just beginning to get up and running, and one of the positions they had to take was that what we do is correct subluxations only. We don't do anything else. And it was part of the identity of their survival in the accreditation world with CCE, etc. cetera. Um, Because I, as a student, I went to hear Reggie Gold's lecture at his home in Spring Valley, New York. I hitchhiked out from Palmer, uh, sat in the room. I got there after it had just started. Uh, It was a split-level house. Uh, There were about 40 people there, so I couldn't see him because the downstairs were full and people were sitting on the stairways and in his living room where I had to sit where you could hear him. And I have to tell you, he talked about all the ways that chiropractic uh, changed people's health care by being under care. Everything short of growing hair on a cue ball, just to be honest with you, right? So, <laughs> so, you know, and, and I would also add, because I wound up there as a practitioner, right? when I was in practice, I wouldn't let people tell me why they were coming. I didn't want to know their condition. I didn't write it down, uh, any of that, because I told them none of it would help me know where to adjust them. That's so a, I didn't need to know out. that. And what I realized in retrospect is I cheated people out of a whole, realm of understanding chiropractic. Watch everybody that I've ever known that gets turned on to the principle. The first thing they get excited about is that the body can heal everything That's it. and that chiropractic frees the body up to heal everything. And then you start getting into the notion of there's something beyond the symptomatology of real health. And then you get into where you're talking about where Reggie was, where I was, et cetera, where you go, You know what? It's about the subluxation. Don't even talk to me about that other stuff. You follow me? But if you don't go through those stages of development, then you're cheating people out of the story. And so how I would frame my answer to your question is when people get, we did a focus group with 25 patients recently in the last three years, 25 patients from different offices across the United States and Canada. And we had these 25 people at our disposal without their chiropractors, because we wanted to find out what they really thought, not with their chiropractor sitting in the background. And one of the things that they told us was um, that they had more they had more questions to ask their chiropractor, but they didn't ask because they knew their chiropractor was too busy. And they weren't mad about it. They just realized we're got a whole reception room full of people that we need to see. So we asked them, what were the questions? And interestingly enough, 99% of them were lifestyle questions. They wanted to know about natural childbirth. They wanted to know about vaccines. They wanted to know about drugs. And what dawned on us was that if you get even the slightest sliver of the big idea of chiropractic, when you're, and most patients do on some level, get an idea that this is a different approach to looking at who we are as humans and health. Then they have all sorts of questions about how to live that principle. And if we don't answer, we ask them, well, if you're not getting answers from your chiropractor, then where are you going? And they would go, well, we go to WebMD and to Google and to Dr. Bill Gates, you know? And uh, they're now going out to get medical information when what they wanted was information about how to apply the chiropractic principle to all the issues in life, right? I don't know a chiropractor on the planet that only gets adjusted and isn't concerned with how they eat and how they sleep. And if their uh, spouse gets pregnant, uh, you know, if they get have pregnancy in the family, how they're going to deliver that child, uh, every chiropractor deals with that. And some chiropractors have said, I don't deal with it. And I've always said, well, you know, what, what if a patient asks you, hey, my wife and I are pregnant, we're thinking about natural childbirth, what do you think? chiropractor?'" I, I don't know a chiropractor on the planet that doesn't at least refer them somewhere, which is their way of dealing with it. Yeah. And other chiropractors say, I'm going to deal with it and tell you the information you need and send you home with the research product, information, et cetera. So people need, I'm going to call it chiropractic lifestyle information once they get the idea of chiropractic. So I real, and this goes back to patient education. I always ask these chiropractors, why do you bother educating your patients then? Because if it's just about the adjustment, just adjust them. And of course, their comment is, well, if they don't get educated, they won't come long enough with their families for a lifetime. So we all deal with things outside of the adjustment, right? It's just, what is that scope going to be and how are we going to deal with it? So I've always felt there are two aspects of chiropractic. This, the miracle of standing over a table and correcting a subluxation, and the miracle of transforming a person's mind because it is a battle for the hearts and minds of the consumer, transforming the patient's mind to our principles and helping support them build the life they want.
0: And this is where we are completely aligned. And you know, just to, yeah. I sent out an email to our list about two weeks ago, and I very rarely rant, um, ever. You know, speaking or writing, but I it was a little bit of a rant, probably the first one I've ever done to an email list. The reason why I had a rant was in one day I was listening to a podcast, again, a very popular podcast, and they had a medical doctor on there and she was talking about the microbiome, you know, your gut bacteria and how the gut bacteria can affect out, things outside of digestion, you know, everything from the mind and, and so forth, the immune system. Um, this became the most downloaded podcast ever of this particular podcast. The very same day... My wife showed me an Instagram account of a psychiatrist, um, and he was talking about how people should play racket sports because it stimulates the cerebellum, and when you stimulate the cerebellum, it has other benefits outside of just balance and coordination. Again, 50,000 views in 24 hours from a psychiatrist. Why I was ranting was we've been talking about those things for I mean, for even for me, I would say twenty years. For you, you probably say way, way longer. I mean, James Chestnut was teaching us about microbiome in the early two thousands, the whole cerebellum, uh, you know, thing. So what seems to be happening is these principles are now coming into the general public's realm, but it's not the chiropractors that are saying it; it's the other yeah. professions that are coming out and almost saying, "Wow, look at this new." Thing that we've discovered the body actually does is designed to be healthy if you give it the right raw yeah. materials. So yeah. how how do we as a profession, and again, it's not a competition or whatever, but how do we as a profession position ourselves in a way that we are, again, at the forefront of this message because we've been saying it for 200 years?
1: Yeah. You know, I I look at – I'm going to make a statement. I can't defend it, but I don't think anyone will disagree with it. My father, when he practiced, got better results with patients than we get with patients today. And the reason is when his, his pe- when his patients came in to get chiropractic, they weren't on three drugs, they weren't uh, uh, breathing in toxins, they weren't obese and overweight, uh, the way our society is today. Uh, and so today when we adjust people, it's hard to see uh, innate working because it's working in such a cesspool compared to when my dad adjusted them in 1950, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I went and Googled the top 10 lifestyle diseases in the United States. It took me two minutes. You just go to Google, put the, the, num- the uh, comment in. It'll pull it right up. Uh, and it's all, all the stuff that we would expect. Heart disease, arthritis, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, lung conditions, et cetera. And the whole idea is that if they're lifestyle diseases, then if you change the lifestyle, you should alter the course of the disease. Maybe even prevent it, of course, would be the ultimate dream. And then I went to each of the organizations that represent those things. So, you know, heart disease, half a million deaths a year. I went to the American Heart Association. Right on their homepage, they have a list of the lifestyle changes that they say are necessary. And And by the way, I went to every one of them. They all say exactly the same thing with very minor deviation, which is, you've got to exercise, you've got to change your diet, uh, both the portions and the kinds of foods you're going to eat. You have to quit smoking, moderate alcohol. You have to uh, build healthy relationships, what they call social connectedness, connectedness. You've got to control your weight, learn how to sleep. Basically, every one of them is exactly the same thing, almost word for word. Whether you went to NIH to look up the lifestyle changes for Alzheimer's or you went to the American Heart Association or you went to New York medical school for arthritis. They were all exactly the same thing, Uh, including the Cleveland clinics has a list right on their homepage that says exactly what we need to do. Their list actually includes gratitude and thankfulness uh, is one of the lifestyle changes we need to make. And so uh, chiropractic, you're right. Chiropractic, absolutely. When you understand our principles, people fall into these kinds of lifestyles, which is not so much about dramatically putting something different in their body, as much as it is quit putting the crap in, get moving, learn how to sleep, get your weight under control and with chiropractic care. And by the way, lower blood pressure was on every one of the lists, uh, which you can control all the others. Of course, medicine is going to lower your blood pressure with drugs. We know thanks to Marshall Dickholt's research, out of Chicago, his 10-year study on um, upper cervical adjusting, the only peer-reviewed article ever published in the Journal of the American Medical Association was his research on blood pressure, which showed that when a chiropractic patient gets adjusted, their blood pressure lowers and normalizes Mm -hmm. every time they get an adjustment. So, you know, we know what the solution to these things are, and it's the natural chiropractic lifestyle that we support And I don't think that a chiropractor, I know a chiropractor couldn't be competent and deal with all of those, but we certainly should have a way of educating people how to find the information and resources to live this kind of a life. I'll give you one example. Um, Let's say a patient gets up off your table and says, um, hey doc, my wife and I just got pregnant. What do you think about chiropractic care for her? Is it safe? I see kids in here. What's this deal about kids getting adjusted? Some people, I heard someone even say, they brought their child right here on the way home from the hospital after the delivery, right? Chiropractor has a bunch of people in the reception room. They either say one of two things, I don't deal with that. Or most chiropractors, 99% of them are going to say, uh, you know, hey, here's what chiropractic, here's why chiropractic supports natural birth, et cetera. They'll give them a seven to 15 minute, depending on how enthused they are that day, explanation of chiropractic and natural birth. Most of it is enthusiasm, right? Versus anything, any researcher that they send the patient's home with. And the patient goes home and what do they do? They go to WebMD to get details and answers, which is not our message. Here's how we've changed it, right? Uh, In our clinic in in the Detroit area, patient says that to us, gets up off the table. We say to them, hey, we, we have an app. Go to the app. There's a five-trimester program with Claudia Onrig, one of the profession's leading authorities in chiropractic and pregnancy. She'll take you through the three months prior to pregnancy, trimester one, two, and three, all the things that are developing, what's going on, uh, what kind of tests you might need, what kind of uh, uh, supplements you might need. Uh, She'll talk to you about uh, research articles that you can download, and then she'll even cover the last three months after delivery for mother and child from a chiropractic standpoint uh, for the best care possible and if you have questions you can ask me when you come in it's a 45 second answer with the patient going home with real information rather than going to web md so i think that one there are ways for us to do this today without stopping this right which is what we which is what we're trained to do and in fact there are ways to give the patients better information so they can make better decisions and give us more time to do this in the practice with more patients. So, anybody that tells me they don't address these issues or they're not concerned with them, uh, I'm saying they're cheating their patients because there are easy ways to do it.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, and again, this is the, the the app that you mentioned is the the, the project that we've been discussing, and um, I, I truly believe in yeah. the the purpose behind that as well. So, um, just if, if I can change gears slightly because I. Um, I was wanting to ask this uh, to you, but earlier, but I didn't. Was, and I'll say this because one of the pain points that chiropractors have when they when I speak to them is they are struggling with overwhelm, the balance of life. You know, often they have families, they have children, they have busy practices. Yeah. Um, in my own life, what I've come to realize is there's never a time of balance. There's always something that your attention is off of, and it's 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 a pl- spinning plate. Uh, you know. But someone like you that's achieved so much, are there any practical things that you have done in your career that have helped you monitor, let's say, the five most important areas of your life and and understood when one of those plates are starting to wobble? Um, Because, you know, you get people like you that seem to have the same 24 hours but accomplish so much and you have other people that are constantly feeling overwhelmed. So some practical advice of if you are, feeling overwhelmed in practice and you have family and other things, what would you suggest they they do as something that they can start doing tomorrow?
1: Yeah. I, you know, I would never tell anyone to model their life after mine. Uh, there, I, there's a famous, uh, poem by Yates that basically says man must choose between labor and love. And if he chooses labor, you'll leave people screaming in the dark. Um, Uh, I chose labor for most of my life and left a lot of people, family and people I loved, uh, screaming in the dark. Um, So I think we have to be careful, right? I think, and I agree with you, there's no such thing as balance. Um, We're always out of balance on some level or another. And so I I would suggest to you that maybe the first thing is uh, to be able to have someone You can buy it if you want, or if you can have a great friend, but someone that uh, helps you as a mirror reflect back to you the things you're doing and how they're impacting people around you. Uh, And I think that at heart, you have to make a commitment that uh, you're gonna choose love over labor. If you had, if it came down to it, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be successful business people. I know some of the most successful people in the world, but they're not unidimensional. They understand what the real important issues are, and they keep those issues first. So finding, I think finding a group of people or a friend uh, that have the beliefs that you have and can hold you accountable, and uh, I I think that's absolutely critical. And if you don't have a group or friend like that, then uh, find a a psychologist or someone that you really appreciate and make sure you're checking in with them regularly. You know, there's only two areas where people... If they have uh, coaches, it's considered weaknesses. Every other area of life, other than these two, if you have a coach, it's you're considered to be a genius, right? So um, Tiger Woods has a coach, right, a swing coach. Nobody thinks that he's a bad golfer because he has a swing That's coach. That's so true. <laughs> so right? True. Every area. The only two areas, the only two areas where you're looked at to be weak if you have a psychologist or in human, rela- or if you have a psychologist, if you tell people, I'm seeing a psychologist on a regular basis, their first question will always be, What's wrong? Are things not going well? You follow me? Yeah. And, and so we've got to get out of this and realize that there are coaches in different fields that can help us be reflective. Uh, oftentimes we can't get that from our spouse just because of the dynamics and politics of relationships. And so you need to have friends, right? You need to have um, someone that's a professional that can be a coach in the areas uh, that you know you're weak in and that you need support in. And sometimes people are great at relationships and bad at business, and so they need a coach in business. Yeah. So it's a matter of knowing what you're good at, what you're not good at, and then finding people that can support you and have coaches in these, in these other areas.
0: Yeah, that is so true what you say that, uh, you know, it, it's almost, as a, it's like a status symbol if you have a coach in sport or you have a coach in, in these things. But as soon as it's yeah. around your marriage or something like that, then it's seen as, oh, okay, something's going wrong there. Um, so that that is really, really helpful. I mean, even for me, I think from what you're saying, you have to have somebody objective that you can just check in with. Because otherwise, especially as chiropractors that are mission-driven, we can run away with things and and get too focused yep. on the one thing. And there's there's always a there's a cost to everything. I mean, I yep. I've personally made sacrifices with my family when I was building my businesses. Um, and there there's always a cost. But as long as we can yep. check in and make sure that that cost doesn't go too far, then we have the the best chance of having a fulfilled life with all those areas.
1: Yeah, um, when well, yeah. we put together. The different strategies, I'm a, I'm a Disney uh, disciple, right? I, that's where I learned my business uh, approaches to and used it at Palmer and at Life and to rebuild the school, all of them. But um, one, one of the things is when you you have a vision and values statement to start with, uh, Waltz was very simple. Three words, fam, uh, family entertainment empire. Everything that they did was through that filter, the family entertainment empire, Uh, The empire was his goal. Family entertainment was the value system. So, um, and then he had all the strategies underneath that, which were amusement parks and television shows and films and product lines, et cetera. Those are all strategies under a family entertainment empire. Uh, In chiropractic, you've got to have your vision and values. And then underneath that, you have your strategies, strategy for new patients, a strategy for, clinical expertise, a strategy for uh, marketing, a strategy for staff, etc. But they all have to fit within the vision and values. But one of those strategies has to be personal development. Uh, let's face it, practices grow in direct proportion uh, to the, the individual chiropractor. I used to have people when we were managing 7,000 offices at Quest, they'd come to me and say, Uh, Doc, I'm seeing 30 patients a day, but I know in my heart I'm really a hundred patients a day practitioner And I was nice in the early years and then Eventually you get to where you just have to tell them the truth and you go No, you're not a hundred a day practitioner. If you were you'd be seeing a hundred patients a day You're a 30 a day practitioner And so something's got to change inside if you want to see a hundred patients a day and it's not procedures right you everybody knows procedures the change has to be a, a personal change inside the person of purpose, passion, vision, those kinds of things, and then you can be a. I went from thirty a day to hundred a day in six months without changing one procedure because of what changed inside of me at one point.
0: So totally agree, and I mean, you uh, know, uh, I think it's. This whole thing of success is all about mindset. It's, it's become like a cliche, but I think anybody who has had success in their life, they truly do understand that it's it's the person that you become. And why even if with myself, I'm a coach and I know you do a lot of coaching. The, the client has to go through some discomfort because it's a discomfort that... Sure activates internal resources within themselves so that they become that person i think it was uh, is it brian tracy who said the first million is the hardest the second million is inevitable but that's because of the person you become to gain that first million and perhaps in my experience some chiropractors aren't willing to go through the discomfort make the sacrifice make the risk take the risk would you, would you agree with that? Would you say that's one of the biggest challenges for chiropractors that wanna expand their impact is that maybe they, they're afraid of going out of comfort zones?
1: Yeah, uh, it, this is gonna sound like this was a setup, like we knew where this was going, because this goes back to my comment when you asked me to give a quick resume of my life and I mentioned the thing that got me off the beach was hearing a guy named Werner Earhart, which was S-training, which is now Landmark or The Forum, uh, Someone drugged me to his lecture in San Diego. Five thousand people. He had nothing but a big chalkboard. That was the technology, and he put up three circles. This is what I remember about being there. For we were there maybe three, four hours. The first circle he labeled everything you know, and everything we know is not only just what we know intellectually. It's how, from the moment that fertilization occurs, the consciousness of cells and the Etc. So it's everything we know consciously and subconsciously. And that's what we know. And we've learned how to survive and be somewhat successful inside of what we know. The problem is that when you get to the edge of what you know, uh, then your body starts having emotional responses to it. So there are a couple ways we used to do this with people. One was we take them out to my ranch in Colorado, put them in some gear, and then have them walk backwards off a of 400, a 40-story uh, high cliff, and it, there's that moment when you're leaning backwards before you start rappelling down, where you know if I just go another half inch backwards, I'm out of control, I can't come back. And of course, the, you can imagine the huge adrenaline rushes. Well, there's other ways too, like asking people who have never spoken to get up in front of an audience and speak. You're pushing them to the edge of what they know, and you're asking him to move beyond that. So, yes, there's always a visceral, chemical, uh, intellectual, emotional, mental reaction. When we get to the edge of what we know, the problem is, it's that old silly line, as long as you stay inside of what you know, you're going to keep having the same outcomes. Yeah. And so then Werner put another circle just outside of that. And he goes, this is the area that you know that you don't know. Uh, so, for example, I know that I don't know how to speak Russian, right? Uh, I knew when I was in practice that I didn't know how to stand up in front of a group and give a lecture on chiropractic. I knew that I didn't know how to do that. And it took me a year of pain uh, to be able to break through and actually get up in front of a handful of patients in in my reception room and give them a class one day. Um, But I I knew that if I could get to this area that I know that I don't know, that I could be more successful in life, right? Because I would know that I knew how to communicate which has been probably the most, individually, the most important skill set I could ever learn, that I could say created the life that I want to have, is the ability to communicate my ideas. And then outside of that, he put another big circle. And I probably wouldn't even put a ring out there because it implies there's some limitation. And this is the realm that we don't know that we don't even know. right? This is where people think they experience miracles. They hear something. totally transforms their life you know that kind of thing and so yeah the day-to-day work is to say my goals are to get into the realm of what i know that i don't know because if i could learn these things etc i could have a better relationship a better practice more impact etc and then we work every day trying to get outside of what we know into this realm and learn the behaviors there and then once you learn those behaviors then the outcomes are different also right uh, and always being open to the miracle of every now and then something happens that propels us into the realm of we don't even know that we don't even know yeah
0: for sure uh, that is such a such a good way of explaining it and um i think i'm going to think about that for a while and actually uh, draw three circles and, and start planning my way of, of explaining that principle because it's it's been my life experience um and you know, speaking to chiropractors that I can see they stuck, but they, they're worried about going into something new and they're worried about the opinion of others and that they're worried about criticism and all these things. And um, it's important that they understand that people like you and me and everybody else that seems to have achieved things, we have the same fears and discomfort as they do. It's just for whatever reason. Every day. Every day. Yep. So you still do today. Yep. Um, but for yep. some reason and, you know, we've been able to push through that and it hasn't been comfortable. It has not been a pleasant thing at all. Um, And they are just one step before they get to that realm. So hopefully that this, uh, what you just said, will inspire some of them to understand what they truly want, what they truly value, and then take that step and that risk into discomfort towards that that, uh, vision that they have for themselves. Yeah,
1: everybody thinks that people that are really successful, like you just said, have no fear. In actual fact, People that are really successful have more fear than people who aren't because they're always pushing that envelope of what the edge of what they know, right? They're trying to push that envelope. And when you jump off the cliff, there's always fear, right? So uh, people that are actually moving and changing and, you know, altering things are people that basically they're in some kind of distress, fear, apprehension, uh, all the self-doubt all the time, right? All the time. They don't project themselves that way, but they are, right?
0: Yeah. From the outside, it looks like you just have it all together. But I think of that that image of the you know like a a duck floating on the water, and the feet are going wildly underneath. You don't see that, you know, and you don't see the the you know the laying up at night and being anxious and and, you know all those things that you people don't talk about it either. You know, I think it's it's more common now, but a lot of people haven't. But uh, Dr. Reekman... when did you get your when
1: did you get your last full night of sleep? (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, probably ten years ago, uh, just before my first son was born. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely,
1: I'm the same way. I can't remember the last time I laid down and had a full night of sleep.
0: No, for sure, for sure. And it's it's um it's sometimes it's anxiety, sometimes it's excitement. You know that that keeps you up at night. And uh, like I said, there's a there's a cost to everything. And the, us, I mean, you are not very entrepreneurial. Um, you know, like I am, and um, we take risks. And uh, yeah. we, we, we thrive on those risks, but there's a there's a cost to it. But I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't change, I wouldn't change anything because what I've also learned, and, I, and we can maybe end off on this with your opinion on it, is that the difference between happiness and fulfillment. In that, the way I see it, happiness is based on some external circumstance. I'm happy when I get the car, the house, the the wife, the husband, and it's based on external. Whereas fulfillment is different, it's like this this feeling of that you on on purpose on a mission that you're making a contribution, but you're not always happy when you're fulfilled. You know, there's a uh, when I was working really hard building my first online business, I remember the coach at the time. He came into my office and I had a big desk and there were papers everywhere, computers. I was tired, I was stressed, and he said to me, um, "You should take a picture of yourself now because I can see you stressed and you're tired, but you look fulfilled." I'll uh-huh. never I'll never forget that because I wasn't happy at the time but there was this heart feeling of I'm on I'm on a mission or on a purpose so let's end off with of that talk talk to me about the your your understanding of fulfillment where it comes from and how we can experience more of it yeah you know I,
1: I think you hit it right on right on the head happiness is more of an outcome as opposed to something that you create um, the problem is that when people, are in these levels of, and I hate to say stress makes it sound like this is a horrible state. Mm-hmm. The creative state is a wonderful state, right? Creating something new and the apprehension and all of that, it's not painful sometimes, right? But it's not really painful. It's just part of the generative process. And, um, uh, you know, that is hugely fulfilling, but I would probably look at it more the way they look at it Harvard, which is um, what we call positive psychology, right? Not so much—not so much that it's a happy index, but that when our brain is working at positive versus neutral, negative, or stress, we're more productive. Uh, doctors are 19% more successful at making a correct diagnosis if their brain is at positive while they're doing it. Mm. Salespeople are 35% more successful. Relationships uh, have less divorce if people in the relationship their brain is working at positive, even while they're seeing the challenges. So the universe is going to throw us challenges and we're going to encounter them because of the choices and decisions we make. But if we can have our brain working at positive and be productive, then we have fulfillment and out of that can come moments of happiness. Uh, But I see too many people when they wake up in the morning and they're not happy or their brain isn't, you know, not at positive in the moment, uh, and they're they're feeling something, what they do is they pull the covers back up over their head and check out from the world. And that never fixes anything, ever, ever. Uh, When I was coaching people, and I'll end with this, but when I was coaching people that were in that mode, I tell them, just do anything. Just do anything in your practice. And all of a sudden, they do it, and they'd feel a positive outcome to it, right? They'd feel empowered by doing it. So Uh, The trick is to stay in motion, to do the thing, understand what you believe in, uh, to be working on it every day on some level, uh, to love the people around you and make sure you're not leaving them in the dark. And uh, to to me, that's how you live a positive, fulfilled life.
0: Oh, man. God, so much, so much value, so much wisdom. And I mean, I knew I would get this from you, but um, it's been, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. And, um, uh, I will. Uh, I'll try my very best to get it in front of as many people as possible because I think it will be extremely helpful. So I want to. I want to thank you for your time and everything that you have done and that you are still doing. Um, and uh, you know, I'm going to put um, in the description of this podcast. We'll put some links so that people can see what you're up to now as well. But um, okay. thank you for your time and thank you for everything that you do. And um, I, I, I really do hope that our paths cross many more times in the in the years to come.
1: Uh, It's always great to talk to um, a soul that's on the same journey. Mm. Uh, And when I read your purpose statement, when you sent it to me, I go, I don't even have to prepare for this. This is just what we do, right? And it was almost identical to ours. So I appreciate you and what you're doing and the impact you're having on not only chiropractors, but humanity. So a thank you to you also.
0: Thank you, Guy. And uh, that's us uh, for today. And um, we'll uh, we'll give updates on, on the guests that are going to be coming up on the next uh, few weeks. But, uh, you know, we seem to be attracting more and more impactful people. So it's really exciting times. Um, but we're going to end it off there. Bye-bye.